On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Hans, and Hans was married to a coercive, controlling abuser. It's a story of intergenerational trauma, dissociation, financial abuse, public personas, manipulation, and post-separation abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Hans. How are you? Hi, Brandon. I'm doing well. Um, thanks for having me here. I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful to be able to, uh, to tell my story, and I'm thankful for uh, your time and attention here. Well, thank you, Hans, for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Hans is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there is a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today, there is no content warning for today's episode, and I just really want to thank Hans for being here with us today. We don't have that many episodes when it comes to men. We've had a lot of men send in their stories lately, and this is just one of them, so this will be one of many that that are coming. We've had a lot of men that wanted uh, more men's stories, and, and Hans got a hold of me. Hans was really didn't know if he was the problem in his marriage at all and I at the end of the conversation my initial conversation I was like Hans you're a good person and I can't thank him enough for for being here with us today and sharing his story and now without further ado Hans the floor is now yours okay so hi my name is Hans and we'll start off with uh uh, so my childhood experience, I ended up in a long-term narcissistic relationship, and uh, th- therefore, I think in my childhood, it's important to go over some of the traumas that I had that, that sort of brought me to the place where I would be susceptible to something like that. So I, I was born in a small town, uh, and by the time I was six years old, I had lived in as many different towns and cities as I had years, and, and, and been to as many schools. My uh, my mother was a francophone uh, who moved from rural Quebec to this small town in Ontario where, where I was born when she was about 20 years old. I have a, an older sister who we'll call Kirsten, and she was she was born within the first year of my parents' marriage. So in the background of my parents neither neither one of them had finished high school and uh, my mom it, it started off as a a stay-at-home mom, but uh, what her situation was is that they, they had moved to this town from central rural Quebec in to to Ontario, and uh, this was shortly after her mother had passed away suddenly, and uh, she became the de facto mom of uh, of her family. Uh, she was one of nine uh, siblings, and she was the oldest. Uh, her father was an alcoholic, and from my dad's side, um, 
during my early years, those during those six years, while we were moving from place to place, the the reason why we were moving so often is because he was advancing his career. He had a government job in an operational type position. And not only was he trying to advance his job, but he was also involved in the union. He was trying to work his way up uh, through the various positions in the union. Um, he eventually became the union president. I was about seven years old at the time. And that's when we ended up here where I live now. I, I grew up in a bigger city uh, in, in Canada. And, and that's where we moved and we stayed. So my my dad was a pretty hardcore drinker. He partied a lot. And I think most of the partying was more about hosting and hospitality of his colleagues in pursuit of advancement of the union. So all of this time, while I was growing up, I, I only had a small handful of peer relationships. I was perpetually the new kid. And I, I was pretty lonely. I, 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 was, I longed for, for, for someone to play with, you know, and, and I, something that I never really had except for my sister, but she was two years older than me. And I also longed for time with my dad. He was away pretty well all of the time, it seemed. I, I have very few memories of spending time uh, with my dad in, in, in my childhood while he lived with us. And I can have a few memories here just to, 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 to show you the extent of what it was, what that was like um, of spending time or not spending time with my dad as a boy. These are the memories of my dad that I have as a young boy. So something that happened frequently when he was entertaining his friend, he liked for me to be the, the, the I guess, the beer refill waiter. So I would go to the fridge and back and deliver him and his friends beers as they needed, uh, as, as they had emptied theirs. And he also would let me uh, drink a little. Uh, so, and I think, you know, part of that was, I guess, showing his friends, I guess that he was somehow proud that his seven or six-year-old son had uh, acquired a taste for, for alcohol. And for me, it made me feel special because I could see that he was proud of me. And, and so I wanted to, I wanted to be there and, and do that. Um, another, so that's something that happened like dozens of times. The, 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 some of the strongest memories of spending time with my dad was in that situation. Uh, but another time that's extremely memorable is that we were coming home from one of his work parties and uh, he was driving and my mom was in the front seat. They were both totally drunk. And even I was drunk and I was about five years old at this time. And uh, the party was this outdoor festival the, with his union. And they had this tradition where they would, they, they would take these watermelons and they would spike them with rum or vodka or whatever it was and put straws in it. And everybody would drink from the watermelon and eat the watermelon. And at the end of the night, this guy named Brian would cut one of the watermelons in half, put it on his head, and then run into the, the lake, go for a swim that way. Uh, that was uh, that was something that happened from year to year, and I that wasn't the first time that I saw that. It was probably the second or third time. Uh, but this particular time, we were coming home from that yearly event, and my dad actually passed out at the wheel, and my mom had to grab the steering wheel uh, and, and wake him up, and, and that was obviously memorable for a lot of reasons. And another more positive memory, one time he, he picked me up from school, 
this is when I was about eight years old, to take me to a Montreal Expos game. And and this was one of the fondest memories I, I have uh, involving my dad as a young boy. It was a two-hour drive to, from where we lived to the Big O, and, 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 and we got to watch a baseball game, and baseball was one of my dad's favorite things. And and so we were doing something that he really enjoyed. And I was eating hot dogs throughout the game and he was drinking beer and it was just me and him. And it felt really special, but really that's it. That's all. So those are the, those are the times I can tell you about uh, with spending time with my dad. So eventually I was really devastated when my dad actually moved out. My parents had a rocky separation. I, I think I was about nine years old. Um, but he had moved out and back a few times, but I didn't really notice that until it was communi- communicated to me by my mom the final time that dad was moving out. I didn't understand the concept of parents breaking up. And because I had spent so long, I looked my whole life just trying to garner attention from my dad. The fact that he was he was moving out thinking I'm never going to see him again. It was, I, I remember the experience of my mom telling me she had set me in the front seat of the car and we were driving somewhere and my sister was in the back seat and that's not really normal because she's older than me and she usually sits in the front and I would sit in the back. And it seemed like my, my mom and my sister knew and they were trying to explain to me that everything was going to be okay and somehow it didn't seem like that anything was okay at all. And then my sister and I lived with uh, with my mom. And then began the, the the chase, I guess, of me trying to make bids for connection with my dad. And just somehow, every time, nothing ever seemed to to, to work out. You know, like when at the at the beginning of the separation, he would often make plans to take my sister and I for the weekend, which was what was supposed to happen every second weekend. We would spend with him, supposedly. And so many times I'd be excited to see my dad. I'd be waiting all packed up and ready to go to his house for the weekend and then late. And then the minutes of being late turned to hours and then finally realizing, okay, he's not coming. You know, no phone call, no nothing. No acknowledgement of it even. And the next time you'd see him, everything's fine. You know? Hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Okay, I can I can see how um, tough this is for you. I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll be okay. Um, I, I was making notes last night, and uh, the rest of the story I didn't seem to have a problem with. But I was reading reading from the notes out loud last night, and I realized, wow, this is going to be hard to get through. It's like, I guess I have like I've been working on my like healing my trauma, you know. But um, I guess I still have more work to do, <laughs> you know. Well, it's okay that these things affect you. You know, we're listening to your story here. What you went through, it's it's sad. And, you know, you're just letting yourself be sad. So it, it's, it's okay. And just continue back up when, uh, when you're ready and you think you, you're ready to do so. My dad uh, eventually, very quickly actually, partnered with... Uh, the a lady became my stepmom. I could call her Samantha. At the time that uh, she was introduced to us, she was pregnant with my uh, my half brother, who we'll call Mike. And 
you know, I was having a really hard time. I was, I was bullied at school and the prospect of changing schools was uh, something that was uh, attractive to me, but also the, the idea that like, I've just been told by my stepmom that I have the option of moving in with my dad, the, the guy that I've been trying to spend time with my whole life. You know, uh, my mom was a fixture, you know, she was safe. Uh, but uh, I really longed at the time for uh, connection with my dad. So I took her up on it. I told my mom, I'm moving out. I was like 11 maybe at the time, 10 or 11 years old maybe. And my mom was like, oh, well, you know, I'm not, I can't stop you. Uh, so I got on the phone with my dad, said I made my decision. I'm coming to move in. And that's when I found out that it wasn't really serious. And my, my dad was like, no, you have to stay with your mom. Um, that was a pretty, you know, confusing situation. And I think the relationship between her and my dad uh, was was pretty toxic. She was uh, a drug addict, and uh, my dad eventually left her about two within about two years. So she had my two year old brother, and she was a budding hardcore drug addict. And uh, my dad left and moved to a different city and left them by themselves. And uh, my brother, my half brother, and I were estranged. Like we, we didn't really know each other until I reached out to him when I was about thirty-five years old. And that now we have a relationship, but when we were kids, we we didn't have a relationship. And it turned out that he grew up pretty well, taking care of his mom, and uh, that 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 was like the, the his way of life was managing his mom. So um, then my dad moved out of the city uh, at that time. I guess I was 11 or 12. And, and then it was, there was no more struggle about would, I, would he show up to pick us up or whatever. We stopped doing the weekends with, with him, and I'd see him like maybe once a year after that. Uh, and then about my mom, she was a rock, is a rock. I never, I never had any reason to doubt that she loved me. She was a single mom. She had uh, very little education, and she was raising two kids, and she did everything she could to improve our lives. Like she, she took night courses. She, be, she tried to become an accountant. She ended up being a fairly well-paid bookkeeper uh, in the end, and she did her best. You know, But despite her efforts to be the best mom that she could be, I think she had her own psychological issues and traumas to work through. She was not really able to be emotionally present. So, um, uh, it wasn't like until I was 12 years old that I ever remember my mom uh, giving my sister or I a hug. You know, it just wasn't a thing. She was a great mom, uh, but uh, she wasn't just in a headspace when we were kids that where she could give us the kind of nurturing or the feeling of being safe uh, that 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 you that most kids need. But she eventually, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, she got psychological help. And that was the first time that the word codependent came into, a, came into my life. Uh, I remember when she came home and she said, we got to start hugging and, and things were going to change. And uh, she explained that she had this problem where she's codependent. And she said, actually, we're all codependent. Codependent was a word that was used by psychologists and like organizations like Al-Anon 
to explain how people who are close to alcoholics, alcoholics are dependent on alcohol, and codependents are also dependent on alcohol. They suffer from the, 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 the alcoholic's dependency. And that's how I ended up, I think, becoming somebody who could be susceptible to having a relationship like that with, uh, with, with, with a narcissist. So anyway, moving on to my, my school life, um, I had a lot of difficulties in school. And looking back, what I think was happening was that I was in this constant high-stress trauma response, and I would never be able to focus in class or on homework. The, the common comment that was heard from multiple teachers when my mom would take me to parent-teacher interviews was that Collins is always in a day, uh, eyes light glazed over, blank looked on his face. Now at 50 years old, with some therapy under my belt, I understand what that was. It was dissociation. All through adolescence, it's like I was living in fear. Fear of not being liked, fear of abandonment, fear that bad things were about to happen. Nebulously, never know what it is. Could be anything. So I became a, a people pleaser. I would do anything to get people to like me. To not abandon me, to, to to count me in. You know, I was I was an outcast. I, I spent the first six years of my life when most kids were learning how to make relational bonds, moving from city to city and school to school. I didn't know how to make friends. I was I acted different than other kids, and I knew it, and they knew it, and I, I worked as best as I could to be like them and try to you know, be able to be accepted. And in doing these bids for acceptance, one of the things I would, well, I would act out a lot. I would lie, say things about me that weren't true to impress people, you know. Uh, I'd also do really daring and dangerous things, you know, so much so that I was a pretty frequent flyer at the children's hospital. Uh, at an early age, at about grade two, I was put into a learning disability class. And in this process, I was separated from my peers, and I would I would be integrated for classes like gym, maybe uh, art, you know. For the rest of the time, I was in this segregated class. Uh, so that, you know, that, that increased the difficulty of fitting in. Kids, I would be teased. And really, I, I started to get the sense that even the teachers resented me, especially when I was integrated into their classes. So I was the I was the the kid from the learning disability class coming and trying to fit in with their class, and maybe they thought that that was a problem and made their job harder or something like that. I don't know. So the teachers would actually contribute to the bullying. All the all the kids would be bullying me, and the the teachers wouldn't do anything about it. But not all. Not only that, they would also make jokes from time to time about me that I like at my expense, the whole class would laugh at. They, they would call me out to answer questions knowing that I was dazed and would be able to answer just to make an example of me. You know, and when I was getting bullied, I couldn't tell the teachers because they would always, you know, side with the bullies. So you eventually do get integrated into regular classes and go to high school 
And still there, you know, you were pushed into not taking classes to get you into university while there, which didn't make you feel good, but you did end up making a few friends while you were there. So that was a plus. And then you get into your first relationship. So what happens from here? I also had a, a, a high school sweetheart that I met when I was in, I think it was grade 10 or 11. She was a year younger than me. And it was an interesting relationship. She was really studious, very serious about school. She liked to follow the rules. And then here I was, I was a skater skid. I drank, I did drugs, I had long hair. And I think that she kind of looked up to me and idealized me, you know, like, like maybe she was excited about what her parents and teachers and other friends' impressions would be about her hanging out with a guy like me. But we had a pretty strong limerence, really really deep feelings. We were super, super in love. And after about a year, the relationship became a little bit painful. Uh, she would start doing things like pulling away, and then uh, when it seemed to be over, she would sort of hoover back, uh, and she often talked about suicide. I often feared that if I didn't do what she wanted me to do or I didn't treat her exactly how she wanted to be treated or if the outcomes weren't exactly how she wanted, that the worst thing would happen. So I either couldn't leave her or or I had to let her go, depending on the mood, or I had to drop everything and go to her, or I had to give her space. If I didn't get it right, then... You know, who knows? She might actually, you know, commit suicide. We stayed together for four years. And and at the time, I convinced myself that my presence in her life was kind of bringing her down. And that was kind of the messaging that I was I was getting. And I, I, I believed it. Uh, and then one day, uh, I, she just kind of discarded me. Uh, she, she told me she wanted to go to her prom with this other guy. And then she stopped talking to me, you know. And uh, that kind of, that really upset me and I was confused. And like I said, I felt discarded. So after this relationship from here, you're working as a cook, training to be a chef, but then you and a friend of yours decide to go on an adventure out West and to leave for a while. And you're really out there for a while. You're doing odd jobs, apricot picking, more cooking, but eventually you do decide to move back home to your home city. And this is where you meet your future wife, the person that this story is about. So walk us through this. Uh, when I met my future, my future wife, I got back to the, my hometown city. I moved, I got an apartment with a high school buddy, not the same buddy that I, I went out west with, but another friend. It was the same group of friends. And uh, him and I got an apartment downtown in a really happening part of uh, the, the downtown area um, and where there were lots of pubs and outdoor night activity and stuff like that. And one day, a group of girls knocked on, the, on our door and introduced themselves. They had just uh, moved into the apartment upstairs. And, and uh, my future wife was, was one of those girls. And she immediately seemed to take a, a, a strong interest in me. And this was strange and exciting to me at the time because I had a hard time feeling accepted. Um, even my relationship with my friend, my roommate, had some toxic aspects to it. I, I never 
ever felt like people really liked me, you know, and and here was this girl and everyone thought she was so cool and she was always the life of the party and somehow she's drawn to me. I didn't have to do anything for that to happen. It was just, she just liked me. And she started showing up at my door every day and eventually uh, within a, a couple of weeks of knowing each other, we were spending all of our time together where we weren't either working or sleeping. It, it, it was, uh, it, it was just, it was just this, this really strong friendship, which I, I figured was, you know, going to hopefully lead to a romantic relationship. But I was being really careful at the time, I guess, because I didn't want to do or say anything to, uh, to scare her off, you know. But it, it was a, a, a weird uh, situation because we, we would be in these situations where it seemed intimate and seemed like things would get close and she'd break the tension by talking about how she had sex with this person uh, uh, and that, you know, I, I knew actually and or or how her and her friends were going to go out and party and get laid or something like that. And sort of like, sort of felt like, you know, we would be getting close, but then there would be something sort of pushing me, pushing me away. And, uh, and here I was a guy with a lot of social anxiety. It was really a difficult situation for me. Um, but nonetheless, at the time I saw that this relationship was being really important to me and my gut told me that it would all work out. And uh, her and I decided to uh, move out west. I, I guess it was, uh, I, I don't really remember whose idea it was, but it was kind of like my thing. And, and I think that she uh, th thought the fact that doing such a daring thing was, would, be, would be fun to just drop everything with only a few hundred dollars and, uh, and, and, and move out west and try to make a life out there. And uh, I think that because I had done it before and had some success, that she thought that I could probably take care of her. And I, I think that she liked me, you know, and, and she was attracted to me and, 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 she, and she wanted to do this thing. And we both wanted to do this thing. So we decided to move to uh, the West Coast. Uh, we traveled there via plane. And that first night was when things changed from that weird friendship to a romantic relationship. I guess it was validating after all that time that she really was interested in me in that way. After all, my gut had told me that that was the case, but with the self-doubt and the social anxiety, it was hard to believe. Uh, and I guess I was just confused. Um, but that's when it became a romantic relationship. Um, we spent a few weeks in the, the youth hostel there. Uh, and then when we started running out of money, I had to get some work. Uh, so I, I, I was able to find various jobs. Uh, she didn't work, but I was able to make enough money and make, make a, a situation that gave us a means to have a place to live. And she had this uh, dream that she wanted. She wanted a Volkswagen bus. And, uh, I also thought we needed a car. Uh, it would be nice to have a car for us to go travel around. Uh, I was a, a little bit uh, reluctant about owning an antique vehicle, like a Volkswagen bus like that. I didn't at the time know anything about cars or anything like that. So 
I didn't think it was a good idea. And this was like the first time where I realized that I guess it was a foreshadowing of things to come. I didn't realize that at the time, but what happened was I realized that disagreeing with her on this thing was impossible. Like she would not let life happen unless I agreed to buy this Volkswagen bus. And me being the people pleasing person that I was just eventually gave in. So in order to buy the Volkswagen bus, I had to get another, uh, another job. And so I got another job. And after about three months or so, we saved up the $2,000 that it took to buy this Volkswagen bus that we had found. And I, I guess the, the stars were aligned against us that, that day that we finally bought the Volkswagen bus because we drove it from where we, the guy's house that we bought it at to where we were going to park it. And by the time we got to the place where we were going to park it, it immediately burst into flames and burnt to a crisp, I guess you would say. Uh, fire trucks came, and that was the end of that Volkswagen bus. Um, so there we are uh, with this burnt-out Volkswagen bus. Thankfully, we did all the stuff that we needed to do. We had insurance, uh, and despite the fact that we paid $2,000 for it, I think BC was willing to give us $1,300 for it. But, uh, she took that $1,300 from the insurance company and sent it to her dad. And eventually, I worked enough for another few weeks where I, we had enough money for plane tickets to get to come back to the, our hometown. So we came back to our hometown, and she had decided that we were going to stay at her parents' house. And her dad agreed to take the $1,300 and buy her a bus and fix it up for Daddy to the Daddy to the rescue, which also became a recurring theme in our relationship. So during the time we were staying at her parents, for the most part, uh, I worked at full time at a restaurant, and nearly all the money that uh, I made went to her dad, uh, which seemed right to me because I was staying at their house. But in reality, I think most of that money was going to buy Volkswagen bus parts. And he spent that summer out on the driveway, uh, welding and all kinds of things to fix that van up. Uh, and I did everything I could to help. But here's when I realized that I, I started to learn about uh, my future wife's uh, family. Her dad was a very toxic man. He would constantly yell and swear at me and berate me, insult after insult, while I'm trying to help. And I felt like sort of trapped where I was in this relationship with this, this girl. And it was a really important relationship at the time. We've been together for a, little, a year now at, the, at this point. And uh, I'm stuck here with this angry father. Uh, and the full-on expectation from her was that I was going to continue helping him and you know eventually her, her her mom would would come out after he would berate me and I was really upset not knowing what to do saying you know we got to get out of here I can't do this anymore and she'd be like don't worry about him this is her mom speaking uh, it's just how he is uh, he doesn't hate you you know blah 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 and I would eventually I would agree to stay this happened a few times that summer bus was finished that fall. We took the bus for another trip out west, this time to Vancouver. The story that year in Vancouver is very much the same as the previous trip out west. Uh, we don't think we need to get into the details. It's 
was me working, doing the brunt of the work, her controlling the money, making all the decisions, no consideration for my input needs at all was was allowed for. And 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 this is something that eventually over over the course of our relationship kind of became a norm. Uh, and, and after that year in Vancouver, we decided to go to university. So we just came back to our hometown and got an apartment. And she immediately got accepted into uh, a science program at the university. Um, but me, on the other hand, actually only had a grade 10 math. And I had decided to go into engineering. Uh, her dad uh, was an engineer. Her older brother was studying to be an engineer. And... Uh, and I had this inferiority complex. She was brought up, my, my, my future wife, I mean, that eventually university was the only way. Whereas I was brought up as someone who was told that you didn't have what it takes to even go to university, so forget about it. Um, so I was kind of trying to prove something to myself and to everybody, you know. And uh, that's what I did. I, 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 I took the prerequisite courses for engineering that the admissions at the university said I had to take and get good marks in. I took calculus, chemistry, physics, algebra, all through various means, night school correspondence, etc. And I, to my surprise and everybody else's surprise, I got three A's in those courses and I, I got admitted into the engineering program. And that was a life-changing thing for me. I had proven to myself that that meant a lot. That meant a lot to me. Um, but as soon as this happened, I got into the engineering program. She decided to drop out of her science program that she was in and take engineering with me. So that's that's what she did. And all through university, we had our sources of income were government loans that we both qualified and i also had a semi-full-time job uh again at a restaurant so all through university i worked at this job and and helped pay for our tuition and rent and everything like that and as goes the pattern the way that it worked out in university i had to do all the work so we were in the same all in the same classes and so I had, I did all the homework. I figured out all of the problems. I did whatever it took, group work and stuff like that with other people to help figure out how to do all the homework. And uh, then I would teach it to her. She just never did any of the homework the whole time. So, you know, not only was I doing all the homework, but I was uh, also working and, uh, and, and doing everything else that, it took for us to sort of be able to maintain ourselves. And at this time, on top of the stress of school, this, this behavior uh, started to show itself where it's like she needed to control the situation and she would do this by introducing problems that, that were bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and the first one that I could mention, just as an example, is at one time, just a couple of weeks before an exam period, she decided, she just up and decided that we must have AIDS. AIDS. You know, we've been together for like two years by this point. She was 100% thoroughly convinced that we had AIDS. And all through it, there was this undertone that it was somehow my fault. 
Like, like I gave her a, because of the vagrant lifestyle, I guess I had before we met, like I must've gotten AIDS and given, given it to her. And it was so serious that in her mind, I'm trying to study for exams that were coming up. And not only did I have to get myself ready, I knew that I was going to have to teach everything to her. And it was going to have to be this, this really stressful, short of time thing. And while that's going on, we're having conversations that are like her discussing how she's going to break the news to her parents that were dying of AIDS. I, I was mind blown. Um, you know, and, but that was just, you know, one example, you know, it, it was just these, these episodic things that she would do. Uh, uh, like another example uh, that happened a few months after the AIDS episode is that for some reason she decided that we just can't live together anymore. And again, this was during the lead up to the next session of exams. I could find no logic or reasoning to it. You know, it took me some time to accept her conclusion, but I eventually was just like, fine, okay, we're not going to live together anymore. I guess this is it, you know? And then I realized that she expected me to continue splitting the, the, all of our money <laughs> while I just paid for an extra apartment where I would live and she would stay in the apartment that we had. I was like, no, that's not happening. And eventually that problem just sort of went away. Uh, but this became a serial behavior. I guess it was sort of the same thing as meeting the Volkswagen bus way back at the beginning one episode after another where life became impossible and all we could do was focus on and solve these full world-ending issues that she would present. So it's like I created a sense of always having the sense of, oh, we could just solve this one problem and then everything okay will be okay. So, you know, like back when she was convinced we had AIDS, like we, we ended up going to get AIDS tests. And we got the results like a week or two later. And I was convinced that, you know, once we got the results of the test, that she would calm down and, and she'd be fine. The problem would be over. Just, you know, but all that that meant was that there was a new episode coming very shortly after that was just as ridiculous and just as huge. And this became an ongoing feature in the rest of our lives together. That there was always these things going on where I was convincing myself. And I think she was contributing to, she was convincing herself and me that we just had to solve this one problem. If we just solve this big problem, then we'll be able to be happy. Then, then everything's going to be good, you know? And, and there's all this promise of a good life and kids together, we're going to be so happy. But first we have to solve this problem. So it's like future faking, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so after leaving school, uh, we pretty much eventually, well, we had both graduated. She got a Bachelor of Engineering. I got a Master's in Engineering. She, I spent one more year in university than she did. Then once I was out of university, we moved from the apartment that we had during university and we bought a house. But then these things, like, like these episodic emergencies would, would continue. And it seems like we were always in this emergency recovery mode. Um, for example, 
before we had our first child, the first one of the, the one of the her, her big problems at, at work arrived uh, where she was she was able to work from home. She had this job with the federal government where she was able to work a few days a week at home. Problem is, was she wouldn't actually work those days. So in her but and in her job there was a, a quota for the quantity of work that was measured in hours per action. Uh, an action is processing an application from one step to the next. So you had to do a certain amount of work in order to justify the time that you had. And if you didn't do it, then you would be in trouble. And that was the trouble that she had. She was on a remediation plan, uh, almost about to be let go. And, and that's actually pretty hard from a federal government job. It's one of the only ways you could do it, to be on one of these remediation plans and just not do your work. Um, but then this was a problem that she was creating, right? Like, like for example, you could you could work on the days that you're supposed to work home. That would solve the problem. Or you could at least get in touch with your union to see what your rights are. Like, like let's not just suffer through this problem where we're there's a this unstoppable train where you're not going to do your work and they're going to fire you for it. And the thing that saved uh, the thing that saved that problem was that she became pregnant. And was going to go on maternity leave, and then once it was announced that she was going to go on maternity leave, the the process let up. You know, the the, pre the pressure was relieved. So she ended up going uh, on maternity leave, and we had our first uh, our first child. And so it was great that we we had a baby. I always always wanted to have a baby. I was such a proud father. One of my life goals was to be a good dad. Uh, she knew that I made no secret of it, that I wanted a family and I wanted to be the best dad in the world. I wanted to be the dad that I never had, you know, and it was really important to me. Um, and so while she was on maternity leave, the, the process continued, you know, I found myself having been slipping into a situation where I had no say in any aspect of my life. I, I guess maybe it's partly my own people-pleasing sort of pathology that played a role in that. But there was never any point in arguing with her about anything. It was just like I was saying about the Volkswagen bus or any other thing that she set her mind to. If she didn't get her way, the reaction was just too extreme, you know? So she controlled the money, and she did whatever she wanted to do, whether I agreed or not. And if I didn't agree, she would just go out and spend the money on the thing. Like, there was really no way to stop her. So I just kind of started accepting that part of life where, where you know, everything was for her. Like, there was nothing for me. Everything was for her. And, and not only that, it was not even just everything was for the kids and then for her and then for me. It was like everything was really just for her. Like, even the things we did with the kids were really her and the one thing one thing that she knew about me that gave her the leverage to do this is that she knew that i had this really strong drive to be a good dad she knew that i would always do what i thought was best for the kids and that meant a lot of things like i would keep her from blowing up she knew that so i would do the thing you know that she wanted because she knew that she was willing to sink the ship and i wasn't the, the question of me ever leaving the relationship once we had kids was completely off the table. Like she knew it and I knew it too. I thought, at least I thought I knew it. 
I, I knew that I would not be the same kind of dad that my dad was like, and she knew that that, that about me. And really she used that as leverage to keep lowering and lowering and lowering standard of behavior that was acceptable. And it's really hard to explain. It's like, you can't make this stuff up. Like, it's it's kind of like when you're you're living with a narcissist, you, you can tell the stories of all the things that they do, but there's something that you, it's really just hard to explain, and it's that feeling of not not counting at all, you know, like, and and somehow you have this pathology where you feel like you're stuck with that, and you have to live this way, and it's this hardship that you have to endure. And the behavior just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. While on the outside, she's presenting herself to outside people as this wonderful person. And I used to love it when people would come over, you know, just love when people would come over because then she would be nice. The only time she would ever be nice, she would act nice when there were other people around. But uh, I'll, I'll get into the... Uh, the, the next emergency, she didn't want to go back to work after we had our second child. Uh, so while she was on maternity leave with our second child, she decided that she was going to start a business. And that business was going to be the solution to her not liking her job. And she was changing her career path. Um, we were going to do this thing. And she was going to spend a lot of money doing this thing. I had no control over it, no say over it. All I did was what I thought I had to do was to do the work to enable it, which meant finding a place to rent in a good location, doing the construction to bring the place up to a place where it looks good and build all the displays. So that's what I did. And during the time that we had this business, this is what my days consisted of. I would wake up, make the kids breakfast. Then I would make her coffee. I would bring her coffee in bed. Then I would wake the kids up, pair their lunches, bring her a coffee refill, see the kids off to school, go to work. I had to walk to work six and a half kilometers both ways because I wasn't allowed to pay for parking. I would come home from work. I'd make supper for the kids. I'd bring the kids to their sports and I would put the kids to bed. We eventually had three of them during this time, three kids. One, two, three, put them all to bed. Uh, and then I would go to the store to work on what was ever needed that day. So I was working all day, and then by 8, 8.30, it was time to go to the store and do the second shift. Uh, usually needed to change, uh, change up or make new displays. We had a woodworking shop in the basement so that I was able to do that. Um, I, I had to do the payroll calculations and, and write the payroll checks. Uh, I had to do the GST return paperwork and note that I had no access to the bank accounts to actually pay the taxes. She was the one in control of the money. So, so even if I did want to pay the taxes, I, I, I wouldn't know what account to use. The money wouldn't be there. And she, she was the only one that could spend money. Um, there was usually a list of things in my text from her that I would have to do at the store before I could leave. Normally I'd get home at night around 1 a.m. on the good days. And often all of that would be interrupted with a grocery store list that I would have to get before the grocery store closed. So 
I would have to stop what I was doing, go to the grocery store, like go back to the store and finish up, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning. That's when I'd get home. Then I'd start the day over again and rewind to the top and do repeat. Again, as an aside note, I've already touched on this, that she would, she kept secretive control of the finances. So at the same time, she kept no books. So no records of what money was spent on, either for the business or for our personal accounts. And she used that money indiscriminately, which meant she used business money for personal things, personal money for business. It didn't matter. Just wherever the money was, just grab it. All of our accounts were perpetually overdrawn by their limits. All credit cards and lines of credit were always maxed out. New cards and new avenues of credit were constantly being sought open. Eventually, when I separated, I saw that there were even accounts in my name that I didn't even know about. Uh, she would not actually pay the payroll and GST remittances during while the, the business was open. And these debts added up to several tens of thousands of dollars. Also, note that not paying these kinds of remittance to CRA is a criminal offense. And our bank accounts were frozen several times. Like, this didn't just happen once. This happened like three times. It was a regular occurrence for her to send me uh, with a grocery shopping list, big list, full carts, and she'd tell me which card to use, uh, which card was always different. Like, that would always be a different card. And when I would get to the checkout, the card would be denied insufficient funds. I'd have to call her in front of all the people and she'd quote unquote remember that she forgot to transfer the funds. And then again, with these huge problems, owing say $70,000 one time or $30,000 the next time uh, with uh, authorities uh, uh, freezing our bank accounts and threatening to take legal action, it was daddy to the rescue. Again, it happened several, it happened several times. When our accounts were frozen, tens of thousands of dollars owed, we'd literally be on the brink of bankruptcy. She'd cry to her dad, and he would swoop in and write her a big check, like $30,000 here, $70,000 there, a couple of $10,000 here and there. She would even plan for it. Like when the accounts were frozen and we'd be trying to figure out what to do, she'd say things like, don't worry, my dad will never let us lose the house. She was walking into these financial disasters planning for her parents to give her money in the end. And, and that's what she did. And these were the disasters. You know, like how I was saying before, there was always these, these, these pending disasters, these problems we would have to solve. And if we only solved these problems, then everything was going to be fine. And every time we got this financial message, she would, she would promise, all the financials are totally in order now. We just have to get this money thing taken. And once we get this money from my dad, Everything's going to be fine. We're going to have more than enough money. This will never happen again. The dad understood what was what was going on. The the dad liked to be the one to come to the rescue. It gave him, I think, it gave him a sense of control. Uh, I think that uh, one thing though that her dad did one time where he had to swoop in, and I think the number was this was the seventy thousand dollar number. He was like, you know, this time something's got to happen. And he had an engineer, a little engineering company that he was setting up for his retirement. He was doing contracts with that engineering company, and there was a source of income for him there. But he also had a lot of work that he didn't want to do 
that I was really good at doing, the kind of work that I was good at doing. And then I was an engineer as well. So he's like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this money and we'll do this contract. You do this part of the contract and then that will be the payback. I won't pay you for the work. It's that. I was like, fine. Like, like you work it out, the money thing out with your daughter. And I will be happy to do whatever work you want me to do just for the enjoyment of helping you do the work. But that's what, that's what happened that, that one time where he was like, there has to be some sort of a payback here. Um, but another interesting thing was that in setting up this corporation, way in the beginning, he insisted to his daughter that she use his lawyer to set the, 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 um, the corporation up. And, you know, I don't know if this was a planned thing or not. I like, like, I mean, lawyers have ethics, you know, and, and I'm not accusing this lawyer of being unethical, but it ended up that they, they, they said that I had to be on the board of directors of this corporation. I had to have some sort of role and they decided that it should just be director. And I was like, well, why would I be director of a business that, um, my wife is going to make all the decisions for it. it. Doesn't make any sense. And they're like, "Don't worry about it. It 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 doesn't matter. It's just on paper. It's just for the paperwork, and it's just for tax purposes. You know, like that. That's how it'll be. But what it ended up being was that if you're the director of a corporation, you're the sole person who's actually responsible for the kinds of the kinds of financial efforts <laughs> that she was doing. She wasn't even responsible for it. It was me. Anyways, that was that was stressful. Um, but anyways, uh, the 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 way she had time off her work while she was uh, while she had this this business was that she was taking leave without pay. And what happens is after you've had X number of years of leave without pay, they send you a letter saying you're going to lose your job because you you can't do leave without pay for any longer than this. So you either come back or we'll will take you off of being an employee, you know, or a potential employee. So she decided to go back to the office. I think she was tired of the business. And so there we were with this business that had probably about $300,000 worth of, uh, worth of stock in it. And she refused to do anything to try to sell the business. Like there were other competitors that did what we did that would probably would have loved to, take over the location or at least get the the stock that we had at a discount, you know, and also to inherit our suppliers because that was one thing that there was always difficult was getting suppliers because there was exclusivity deals and stuff like that. But in her words, like she wouldn't do that because she didn't want to give her competitors the satisfaction of knowing that they won. And she also didn't want to give her competitors the benefit of being able to save any money. So, so we ended up just losing all of the money and all of that value. And, you know, that's, you know, part of our house debt. So once your wife's business ends, she does end up going back to her government job, but then the focus of her life becomes your kids and your kids playing elite sports at an elite level when maybe they are not elite level athletes. So walk us through this. So that's the end of the business. She goes back to work. 
And so without the business, now the focus shifts more predominantly to the kids' sports. She always had the kids in some level of uh, elite training and really trying to force the kids to try out for competitive sports rather than just playing house league. And, and uh, I didn't mention it above because there's so much else to talk about. So that was something that was ongoing, but now it became really serious. So on top of pressuring the kids to try out for things like AAA hockey, uh, when they could only make B-level house league the year before, uh, she signed them up for three days a week, ultra elite skating with a skating coach boasting an Olympic record, uh, as well as being the skate coach for an a current skate coach for an NHL team. And she, it was really serious sessions and the kids really didn't like it. She was way too serious for the kids at their skill level and their age and their interest level. And it also costed thousands of dollars per child. Uh, and then when summer comes along, that's just the hockey. It, 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 the same thing would be, you know, ultra elite lessons and pressure to make top tier soccer teams. And so it got to the point where on top of all the debt that we had, we still, she still had all complete control of the finances. We we're always having trouble making our bills, paying our mortgage payments. And she was spending like $30,000 a year, no joke, like $30,000 a year on the kids' sports. Her focus on the kids' sports was, it was really like, you know, more like her tried to live vicariously uh, through the kids. She wanted to be the elite hockey mom. She wanted her kids to get the scholarships for uh, American university teams and maybe go to the Olympics and that, that's the kind of focus that she had. And, and it's really this cognitive dissonance because I, I'm proud of all three of my kids. I love watching them play. And they all have some good skills, uh, but they're not elite athletes, you know, and that's just the fact. They don't have the interest to be elite athletes. Yet she was pressuring them to be these elite athletes. And it, it was so toxic, you know, and one example of the toxicity that was sort of like par for the course. My oldest daughter is a, a really good skater and she kind of liked hockey at the time. And this one year, mom decided to send her to the, the, the tryouts for the competitive organization that she was in. But this year she was going to start at AAA. Here's my daughter who was playing B-level hockey the year before at the at, at the tryouts for the the AAA competitive hockey team, and there were about fifty kids trying out, and you could immediately see the 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 top, the top ten kids. These were really talented, really serious hockey players. Like the skills were amazing. Like. Of, of the top, these top girls. And of course, those top girls made the triple A team. My, my, my poor daughter, you know, the, going to that triple uh, A tryout, her mom was telling her that she was able to make the team and all she had to do was try. She had to try her best and play really hard and then she would make that team. Well, she didn't make that team. And, and I could see why. Like, she just wasn't even close to being at the level of the kids that made the team. And then the next day, they went to the, the AA tryout. 
And again, the same thing happened. You could see the difference between the levels of play. And definitely the best 10 players made that team. And she didn't make the team. Same thing happened with the A team. Didn't make the A team. And then finally, the B team. This was a play, this was, I was looking at the tryouts and I was thinking to myself for the first time in all of these tryouts, here's a place where she fits in. Definitely. I think she is one of the good players. But you know what? She even didn't make that team. And, you know, I felt for her. You know, she was convinced that she should be able to make these teams. I knew that it wasn't realistic, but I didn't want to tell her in, in, that in conflict with her mom, you know. So I was just being, you know, hey, don't worry about it. Like, like you're a good hockey player. You know, you're going to make the team that you best belong in, that's best for you and best for the team. And um, but what her mom did was tell her, don't worry. You should have made the AAA team. The only reason you got cut from all those teams is because the coaches want their daughters and their daughter's friends on the team that they coach. So, so it was all biased. Everybody knows that you should have been on that team. And now we're going to take you from this organization and you're going to play in this out-of-town team that's looking for players just so that you can play at the A team where supposedly you belong. And there, there, so there's my poor daughter, going to be 13 at the time, with this heavy explanation as to why she didn't make the team, you know. And that was the last year that she played hockey. Her, her, mom's, her mom had this connection with this out-of-town team that was like an hour drive away. And it was competitive, A-level, so she was playing against the A-level in the same league. But with a team that didn't have enough players, that obviously they were the worst team in the league. And she uh, would travel at least four times a week, at least an hour there and an hour back to make practices and, and games. And that's the extremity of, of this elite sport thing. So I assume here... When it comes to your wife and future ex-wife, that she's really placing in your kids' heads if things go wrong, that it's someone else's issue that is creating this and it has nothing to do with them. Like she's creating these conspiracy theories that people are against her. And within this situation, it's not just like people as in the coaches. She's implicating that the coaches have kids and these are her friends. Yeah. So she's now poisoning a well of her and the people that she's playing with who are her friends possibly. Because, you know, when you're playing on a hockey team, they might not yeah. be the kids you go to school with, but they're still your friends some in some are. way. You're absolutely right. Yep. So she's really doing a number here of creating doubt and mistrust within relationships and friend groups at a very young age here. So, you know, obviously we might be getting this to this later, but I guess, can you talk about this now with, with your kids? Does it start infecting them in, in, in part of their other 
life outside of hockey is how they relate to other kids. Well, it 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 it, it does affect um, it does affect them in, in in some ways. If what you're suggesting is is, is is like there's a relationship there, my my youngest daughter, she's been through similar things like that. Like I tell one story, but like I I'm telling you that in this situation there's hundreds of stories like the one that i just told you about the hockey you know and obviously yes my youngest daughter was uh, subjected to things like that and and yeah she has a real problem fitting in at at school and with uh with with trusting people and really what that kind of behavior happens like, like she does what she Okay, so for example, I mean, we can fast forward this too, like to, to the separation time. Like after we got separated, she was doing that to the kids about me, you know? And what happens is that it creates a relationship where she's this coercive controlling figure, but the kids are convinced that only she can do what's right for them. So it's like they're afraid of her. They're afraid of her yelling and screaming. They're afraid of what she'll make them do. But at the same time, they, at least my, my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter have, have a hard time trusting me. They're the most alienated of the three. Um, my middle child made a bid for more time with me and actually changed her schedule so that she could spend half time with me 50-50 with the other kids only they have less time. And so I have a closer relationship with, with that one. Yeah, she's more well-adjusted, you know? Like, she plays house league hockey and she's involved in clubs in school. And I don't know. I, I, all I'm saying is that there's a difference and, and that kind of alienation. And that's what we're talking about. In that hockey example, it, 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 it's just a kind of behavior a coercive controlling behavior that results in the alienation. And that's the alienation you were talking about, alienation from the coaches, alienation from her friends, you know? And and in the case now, it, sometimes it's alienation from their father as well. So, you know, before the separation you really become the primary caregiver, you know, you're yeah. making breakfast, you're taking them to school, everything like that. You're the one that makes them dinner. You put them to bed. You're dealing more again with explosions from her crisis after crisis is always continuing, you know, constant rage at home, yeah. yelling, screaming, banging things. You know, you also mentioned to me in our, in our pre-call that there was, the silent treatment, you know, you were all terrorized. And yeah. then eventually you get to the beginning of the end and the end. So what started happening for you to get to this place? There was uh, some significant things happened in my life that basically gave me a shake. And it caused me to question, what am I doing here? What is my life even for? You know, for example, my father passed away. Uh, a, a few months before that, do you remember the first girlfriend that I had was talking about that I had during high school? I found out that she had passed away, and that really hit me, you know, really hard. 
uh, I, I was surprised actually at how hard it hit me, but it kind of makes sense because it's not that I wanted to get back together with her or anything like that. Not at all. But I really did have this curiosity. That's one day I was going to see her again. And then I'd be able to give her an update on my life and we'd have a conversation and then she'd be surprised. Wow. You did really well, you know? And I, I guess in my heart, like there was this desire for that, you know, and that was, that was killed when she passed away. Um, and then a few months after that, my father died. And that was, uh, that was really, um, that was really tough, uh, because I had a lot of unresolved, uh, sort of feelings about my father, although at the same time, I, over the years, I had resolved to to forgive him and, and just try to, you know, be, have the best relationship that we could, even though it wasn't that, you know, connection that I, that I really wanted. Um, and I had an experience with my father when he was in his dying days that uh, I'll never forget. I saw him when, when he was in those final hours, and, and it was stressful for him. You know, and I think he had a lot of regret, you know, and I, I, at least that was my sense of it. I, I felt like my dad was dying and he's dying with a lot of regret. And, you know, I, I would say rightfully so, you know, and that just really made me think about what, what am I doing here? Like, who am I doing this for? One day I'm going to be where he is. happens to all of us what how am i going to feel you know i don't want my don't waste my life in this horrible situation and i also had this i realized the cognitive dissonance and maybe it in the pro, maybe it had to do with the, the the process of forgiving my dad for for leaving us you know the the relate what my kids were seeing they were seeing their father being coercively controlled just like they were, but you know what's even worse? I was the one taking them to those elite skating things in the morning. I was in a headspace where I was just trying to get by. You know, there were there I was taking my kids in the car and they're crying. I was doing this because I had to. They were doing this that because they had to. I was enabling her. It's almost like I was contributing to the abuse of my kids without even knowing it, not intending it, but that's what my kids were seeing. And I realized that, and I looked at that, you know, and I was just, um, I was just, that has to change. Like staying to just to keep the family together is not always what's in the best interest of the kids. The kids actually need to see a role model, a parental figure that's mentally healthy, that isn't being bullied, that stands up for themselves in, in, a, in a moral way, you know? And that's what they weren't getting before I left, at least not to the extent I wanted them to get it, you know? And I felt like I had to take responsibility for that. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, so in the beginning of the end, I'll, I'll tell one quick story that we can, I guess we can get to the se the separation and the, the post-separation abuse, but one of the straws that broke the cam camel's back was, it was my birthday. This was a, this was a, a, a few weeks before the separation and my family had 
plans. Like my mom and my sister and my brother-in-law, they had plans, uh, uh, a thing for me where they were going to barbecue these ribs and we were going to spend the day at the beach. Mom was going to get to spend some time with my kids and with me and we were going to spend the whole day. It was my birthday celebration. And, and my family had been alienated for years. Like my wife really treated my mom horribly, you know, all the way through. She would say really mean things to her and she would do things like my mom would ask, when can I come to give, you know, so-and-so their birthday present to one of the kids. And, and she's expecting like to be able to spend a couple of hours, you know, and, and she lives like a, an hour drive away. And my wife would give her a 15 minute window on a Thursday afternoon, you know? And anyways, that was just the part for the course. And so here was this opportunity that every, my family was uh, excited about. I was excited about seeing my family. I was also reflecting on these things, like, because I, it not only did, was this issue of what were my kids seeing in this relationship, but also I realized, how am I treating my family? Like, I'm allowing her to alienate them. Again, enabling it. I, like, I had no boundary. Like, I didn't even know what boundaries were. But I knew I wanted to have a relationship with my family. And and I wanted to have a better relationship with my family. So this birthday thing was a big deal. And at first, my wife planned not to go. And I thought that was great. I'll just take the kids. We'll go. It'll be a great time. Totally stress-free. And then we'll come back. And then on the day, like an hour before we were leaving, she announced that she was going. I was like, oh, okay, all right. Well, we're leaving in an hour, all right. So we got in the car. We got halfway there. Again, it's like an hour drive away to get to where they live. Um, she announced that she had uh, planned this hockey thing for uh, my oldest daughter that was going to be in four hours from that time. <laughs> And my daughter was obviously really uh, excited about it uh, because it's something that was going to make mom happy. And again, like as part of the course in this relationship and in this family, the fact that it was dad's birthday and dad's birthday party, that didn't matter. What mattered more was a, a skating session. And, and, and that was like programmed into my kid. Of course, they have to go to the skating session. That's their, they were brought up to think of the paramount importance of these things. Who cares that it's dad's birthday? And again, me being that I, I, I was just like knowing how impossible the little bit that, that would have been left of the opportunity to visit my family, given that we all now only had a couple of hours instead of a whole day. And, plan i went along with it but that was really the beginning of the end because then just reflecting on that i realized that the the kids they were being harmed by them in ways that they didn't even realize they had no respect at all for their father they saw their fathers this pushover and they lived in this life that was this course of control, yelling and screaming and banging things and seeing a parental figure never compromise, 
ever about anything ever and a pushover bully dad and and that and all of the i guess it was that series of events that kind of woke me up to like this is it i'm done and i have to leave and leaving is the right thing to do a couple weeks later i was gone and then well you know so the, in in the leaving I think one thing a lot of people don't understand is there is no cooperating with someone like her. So how was I going to leave? There was no way for me to take the kids. And there was also no way for me to tell her, okay, we're breaking up and and we're going to have to spend the next year or so um, making things financially possible. That wasn't going to happen either, and 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 I knew that, like, like she just wasn't going to make that possible. And there was also the the coercive control that I was still susceptible to. If I didn't just leave, I was going to be stuck. The only way to rectify the situation was for me to leave. So I left, and I left the kids with her, and I called a lawyer, and started making plans for how. I would achieve 50-50 custody. And during the first few weeks of the separation, she was calling and texting and trying to convince me to change my mind, right? Making all these promises about how she'll get better, she'll get help. You know, but I had been asking her to get better and to get help for years. I had pointed out that this is what she was doing was abusive to me several times over our relationship and said something's got to happen something's got to change and i knew i i knew that she can't change i understood that then you know so i was like nope this is this is what it is we're separating and i first said you know we're going to start living within our means and that probably means that we can't afford to keep this house that we have because we're going to have to find a way to have two houses so we're going to have to split our 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 assets and split our incomes so we can support the kids and have a 50-50 arrangement. And once she realized that I wasn't coming back, she was really desperate to keep the house because it was quite a, it was a status symbol, you know? It was a, it was a, a really big house. I, I had actually done all the construction myself. During that time that we just discussed, I didn't get into all the details of that because the story is just so long, but during that whole time, I had done the construction to double the size of the house with a modern architecture sort of uh, approach, uh, addition, uh, plus a basement. And it really changed the look of the house. And it's a corner lot in a, in, in a, a really ritzy neighborhood, you know? So it's a prize, this thing. And she didn't want to give up that house. So what she had proposed was the kids stay in the, in the house and the parents move. So when it's your week with the kids, you move into the house with the kids. And when it's uh, the other person's week with the kids, you move out and, and, and they come in. You know, so the kids stay where they are and the parents switch houses. That's what she was suggesting. And it took a lot of convincing for me because I couldn't see how it would work. How are we going to afford two apartments and keep that house? And she convinced me that no, no, she would she would stay at her parents' house when it was her time, 
And uh, if I needed to get a, a, a small apartment, that she would make sure that we would go to this mediation and, and we would just use the mediation to make sure we're divvying up the child support and the, the money and everything so that, that there was enough money for me to have an apartment and she would live at her parents and we would switch back and forth between the house. And, and, and that was the plan. The mediation was scheduled for uh, about uh, uh, several weeks, like, like after the separation. And during that time, she, we were planning for this nesting idea. And in the days up leading up to the mediation, I was messaging her saying, hey, let's work out some of the details of this nesting thing so that we're ready in the mediation. And she would reply back saying, no, it's okay. We'll work it all out with the lawyers there. It'll be fine. And I was like, oh, okay, all right, we'll do that. So my lawyer and I were planning to go to this mediation and the whole issue of custody was already prearranged, taken care of. We weren't even thinking about it. And it was just a big bait and switch. When we got to the mediation, there was no talk of this nesting. She was demanding full custody of the kid with me having visitation rights for a few hours, one time every two weeks. That was her position. And, and on top of that, there was all kinds of really unreasonable financial demand. Not, not, we're not just talking about like table value, child support, or anything like that. We were totally unprepared. And what happened during the mediation was that like we weren't ready for this fight. And, and the mediator actually spent most of the, the whole day with her and her lawyer trying to tell her that there's no legal basis for her to have all this custody. Like she needed to give up some custody. And in the end, the mediator came back. And the first thing the mediator said when they came back after spending maybe five hours with, with her. And, and she just said, she was exhausted. And she said, like, like you know, I, I just learned what it's like to, to negotiate with, uh, with your wife, you know? And, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and she says, so here's the deal. You're not going to get 50-50 custody unless you go to court. And so if you want to come away from this mediation with some sort of a custody arrangement, it's not going to be 50-50. And I'll tell you what, if you, and this is what the mediator was saying, if you take her to court, you probably will get your 50-50 custody. But that's going to take up to two years. And by the time that happens, two of your kids are going to be over 12 years old, and that's when they're allowed to, quote-unquote, decide with their feet. So it may come to the point where there's an order for you to have 50-50 custody. It's not going to happen until then, so they're going to be spending all this time with their, mostly at their moms. Like, if you don't make a deal, you're not going to get it. You're just going to have visitation like she's allowing, because I left. I had no power. And there was a counteroffer. The mediator said, you could have four days out of 14 with the kids. And your wife acknowledges that you need to have enough money to have uh, uh, rooms for your kids. So you're not going to pay the quote-unquote cable value. Where you're going to pay enough support that, um, that, that you can afford to be able to keep rooms for the kids. But in return for that, you're going to give her an amount on the value of the matrimonial home. And it even says in the agreement that 
that both parties feel that this arrangement is in the best interest of the kids. And, and I was convinced to accept that. So instead of getting 50-50, I had something that was more along the lines of like 30%, maybe, whatever, four out of 14. That was a planned way of winning, I guess, for her. Certainly not in the best interest of the kids. I was the primary caretaker. Yeah, so so what are the ways that she uses uh, the kids as weapon to continue her abuse towards you? In in a in the broad sense, she totally cuts me out of all the decision making. In the agreement, she's not supposed to do that, but she does it anyways. And at the same time, she's over scheduling the kids. She's still doing this crazy elite sports thing. But now we have even less money than we had before. And we already couldn't afford the $30,000 a year for sports. But on top of that, I had the kids for four days out of 14. And she would schedule, not only was she overscheduling things, but she would be scheduling them for things that were predominantly on my time, on the days that they would be with me, right? So instead of being able to be a dad to the kids, I was basically a taxi driver for one of them at a time while leaving the other two alone by themselves and then switching, you know, with this crazy schedule where you're driving all day long every time that you have the kids and there's no real time to be a dad. And I started to push back on this because I I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to spend $10,000 a year on top of the child support to pay for these elite sports because I didn't think the kids were even getting much out of it. And in a lot of cases, the only reason why they said they like doing it is because of the coercive control, you know, like I could see that. But what happens is my, uh, my middle daughter, the one that decided to spend more time with me, not more, just 50, 50, right? Like didn't want to be away for that long. Just decided with her feet, I guess, to do 50, 50. And, uh, she, she would tell me the narrative because it was really bothering her. Um, about her mom, like every time, like several times a day when things wouldn't go the way that the kids wanted ever, like it was always, thank your father for that, you know? And that was the narrative at the, at their house was all of the problems were dad's fault. Dad left us. Uh, and she also told the kids that the four out of 14 was my decision. And and I'm not allowed to talk about any of this stuff, right? So she's giving the kids erroneous information like that. And at, when, at the time when my middle daughter was making a bid for more time with me, she was asking me, why did you do that? Like, why did, why did you make it so that we had less time? Like, like and, and I would tell her, well, it wasn't my choice, you know, like, like, and, and she would say, well, mommy says that, that it was all your decision, you know? And then I actually got in touch. I had to get advice from a psychologist on how to deal with that. So I got access to a psychologist. First time psycho- I've ever been with a psychologist was that time. Uh, how do I talk to my child who's being told lies about me, about something really important like that without hurting her, without contributing to the alienation, you know, and it it was a really tough 
thing, you know, to, to, to go through. Like, if your kids are being alienated, you can't tell them your, your mom's lying to you. Because that alienates them further and it hurts them even more. Like, this is what the psychologist will tell you. You have to just be the best person that you can be and hope that they, they see things as they get older. But if you try to hijack the process, you'll alienate them even more. Because they, the, the process of the alienation, the coercive control, the narcissistic abuse results where they feel responsible to make sure that their mom is okay. They're actually... Like the, 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 that control is like so insidious like that. And so also here's another scenario. So, so, so there was that situation and uh, I, I ended up having the conversation with my, my daughter who then decided to, um, to stay 50, 50. And the day, the first time that she did it, she just phoned her mom and she said, I'm staying here. And I was ready. I'd already talked to my lawyer about it. I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be. But her phone at the time, uh, didn't the, the air speaker didn't work, so she had to use speakerphone. So I heard the whole conversation that she had with her mom. And she told her mom that she was staying for an extra couple of days here, and that was that. And her mom was like, first, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed. The agreement says that. You're, you're only to spend a certain amount of time there, and you have to come home now. And she would say, no, no, I'm staying here. I want to stay here for an extra couple. She was determined. And her mom gave her this guilt trip that you wouldn't believe. She's like, she started crying, and she's saying, I didn't ask for any of this. I'm sorry this has happened to you. I didn't ask for any of this. I don't want it to be this way. It's not my fault that you have to come home now, but you just have to come home now. This is your dad's decision, you know, and, and, and basic, and then said, and if you don't come home now, I, I'm going to miss you. I feel so sad. I feel like you're rejecting me. Like all of this pressure being piled on accompanied with the lie <laughs> about how it all came about. It was, it was disgusting the way that my daughter felt all in tears feeling responsible for her mom's pain because she wanted to stay an extra couple days with dad like so that's that that's alienated you know right there that's an attempt at alienation anyways that was partially at least boarded by the kid you know um Another example of alienation was, so I had decided that I couldn't afford the $10,000 or $15,000 a year for all this elite figure skating and elite hockey and elite hockey sessions. And so I, I talked to, again, my, my the, a psychologist that I have that just for the purpose of helping me deal with the alienation of the kids. So I'm getting, it's a child psychologist and I'm talking to them to understand how to, communicate better with my kids so as not to make things worse. I have another psychologist I get therapy for myself. You know what I mean? But this other specific psychologist is just for that. And I also had conversation with my lawyer about it and I wrote her a letter. I wrote their mom a letter saying 
I, I can't afford to do this. Like, there's just not enough money. I also don't agree with it. And I give all sorts of reasons why, all the reasons why I don't agree that they should be spending five or six days a week on competitive sports, especially with the child that I'm talking about, because she is the one that's being bullied in school right now. She is failing. She has a learning plan uh, specialized for for her so that she can catch up with her, her schooling. She's at a reading level about two or three years lower than where she should be, yet she's playing uh, competitive hockey that has her out four nights a week plus the weekend. Plus, she wants to do things like girl guides and stuff like that on top of it. And also, it costs several thousand dollars a year, and I didn't have the money. So I wrote their mom saying, this is the, new, this is the boundary. I can't do anymore. $1,000 per year per child for sports. That's all I can afford, you know? And then uh, on the advice of the child psychologist, I explained the same thing to my daughter. She was 12 at the time. Uh, and I explained to her, I'm really sorry. You're not going to be able to play competitive hockey next year. This is the last year you're going to be able to do it. And I gave her all the reasons why I told her about how there wasn't enough money. I told her about how the family time is important, homework time is important, and all the other reasons why being out five days a week while you're failing in school and being bullied and, you know, struggling with your relationship with your father, like, we want things to get better. All those reasons, I'm drawing the line, and I'm telling you, you can't play competitive hockey. You can play house league, though, you know? And in reality, she's playing low-level competitive hockey. The, the, the A-level competitive teams, sorry, the A-level house league teams could easily beat the B and C-level competitive teams. But I explained it to her. So what happened the next? The, 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 the time that the tryouts came for the next year, the tryouts are in the spring. So this was only a few weeks after I had had that conversation with her mom and her. Her mom, I guess, told her, don't worry about it. You're going to play competitive hockey, and I'm taking you to the tryouts. And they went to the tryouts. She, she kept it a secret for me. So my little daughter keeping a secret about, you know, having a deal with her mom where they're going to force me to, to, to give in about the, the hockey. And so her mom is teaching her that when someone, uh, uh, someone close to them doesn't do what they want, well, all you have to do is set up a bullying situation where you can force them to do. So now we're here in the aftermath. You go to a psychologist and you're dealing with not just the trauma of this relationship, but with intergenerational trauma that was passed down and everything that you've dealt with in your whole entire life. So now here in the aftermath, do you have you know words of wisdom for everyone who's listening? Yeah, I think I have a few. Um, I, I would say, you know, if you're if you're in an abusive relationship and you have kids, you're and you're getting that coercively controlled. Don't fool yourself into thinking that staying until the kids move out is better for the kids. It isn't. The kids watching coercively controlled abusive behavior 
causes more trauma to the kids than a divorce would, especially if the abused parent can heal after the separation and becomes a safe and sound attachment figure. And I think that's what you have to do. And like, that's what I've been trying to do. I'm getting therapy to better my ability to have good boundaries with my kids, you know, and, and have therefore good relationships where they, they need to respect me, but they're also, they feel respected back. And they also feel like they have that freedom to be an individual human, which they don't get at their mom's house. You no, know? at their mom's house, they're just going to be like a hand, their mom's third hand, you know, and it's really important to, to give your, your kids actually need a good parent and you can't do it if you stay. That's my advice. Well, Hans, I really want to thank you for being here with us today. And in our pre-call, I remember you were worried if you were a good person or not. And you were worried, you know, is it me? Am I the problem? Yeah. And, you know, you were thinking about that a lot. Is can it be me? Is it me? And I remember I sat there and I listened to your story. We had to cut it short that day a little. Um, and you know, I was like, you know what, Hans, you're 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 a good person, you're a good person. And today, everyone heard you, heard your story, heard your life, and they all know that you're a good person too. And everyone is giving you a really big hug today. And I really can't thank you enough for sharing your story, translating it really well for people to understand and being very clear with everything. And just a big thank you from me and everyone else who is listening today. Wow. Well, thank you for the opportunity and for those really kind words. It really means a lot. Well, thank you, Hans, once again for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest like Hans was today, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have a support group. So if you need support, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. Inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on. You can make a lot of friends in our support group and get validated as well. It's a great group of people. So join our support group today at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And that is it for today's episode. So from myself and Hans, we hope you have a good night.